I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place, so make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome, everyone. Today I'm with Ricardo Michel Reyes. Uh, can you, Ricardo, please uh, introduce yourself? How would you define yourself in a few words? Awesome. Uh, well, thank you for receiving me in your podcast, Thomas. Uh, I'm, I'm Mexican, first of all, uh, but I've been living outside of Mexico since I was 17 years old. So I have pieces from everywhere in the world in, in, in my culture. Um, I've been living in Spain for four years now which is the longest I've been in a country since I left Mexico. Um, and yeah, most of my AI career, I actually developed in Spain. In, in Mexico, it's hard to do AI. Nowadays, it's advancing a lot. But uh, when I started, no one knew what AI was and selling AI mm -hmm. to people was very hard. Um, so I couldn't actually be an AI person in Mexico. In Mexico, I was mostly doing like apps and websites and uh, like simpler things. Uh, my, my AI, like deep AI career really uh, boosted in, in Spain. So now I can call myself an AI person. I've been doing AI for 14 years, uh, but like having really successful AI companies just been four years, uh, which is Erudit. Um, so now I'm the chief science officer of Erudit, which is based in Miami, but most of the tech team we have in Spain. So that's why I moved to Spain. Awesome. Thank you. I would uh, directly like to ask you about uh, Eredit. So uh, can you tell me, uh, can you tell us more about what is Eredit uh, and how, how, what is your role uh, in Eredit uh, and kind of maybe give a bit of retrospective? Sure. Eredit originally was an education platform, like my business partner, Alejandro Martinez, um, he's Spanish from Madrid. Uh, he invented this algorithm to using people's navigation on the internet, figure out how did they learn if they were like more auditory people or visual people. And he even went to um, Harvard to interview this guy about multiple in, uh, intelligences because um, not only logical, mathematical intelligence uh, is important, but also like kinesthetic and interpersonal, interpersonal. Uh, so he won a lot of prizes with that and he needed like a more advanced or production ready version of his algorithm. So we met through LinkedIn and then I moved to Spain to work for him at the education company, but we finished the project in three days. So I was <laughs> in Spain with uh, nothing to do uh, and, and we started chatting about like what's next, you know, and um, we figured out that in the human resources industry, there was a lot to do about people's emotions and training. Uh, so we started with a training platform, uh, but then we realized people weren't willing to pay for that. So the product just mutated and mutated and mutated. And what it is now is a platform that um, takes data from people's communications. So like 
Zoom, Slack, uh, Teams, all the main communication platforms. And then it inputs the, that anonymized data into several layers of neural networks um, to figure out if they are born out, what's the probability that they will quit in a month or so. Um, then like how engaged are they with the company, if they're happy with their workplace, if they're happy with their team, if they feel they have freedom to express their ideas and like propose new ideas and like several metrics that from other products that normally do service, we, we have seen that are important for companies, also talking with a lot of uh, chief operations officers uh, across the globe. So right now, I think our main advantage is that everything is done automatically. Like uh, normally service, they have to be filled out by people. Uh, so you first have to make everyone answer the survey. And then people mostly tell you what they think you want to hear. So nobody is going to tell you the truth in a survey. So it's like, oh yeah, my boss is the best and I'm super happy. And so all of the engagement service are like five stars all the time because people just say whatever um, you feel good and save their job. Uh, but this thing really like it, our main issue is privacy, of course, because people are very scared of like, oh my God, then you listen to chats and then, but you cannot pinpoint any single person from the platform. It's just like um, a, a view of the department. So you can see like the sales department is burned out. The marketing department has a lot of retention problems. Um, and yeah, and it's a lot of AI, like, uh, because it's, very hard to analyze chats, it's very short messages. And, and then like um, people talk about all sorts of random things. So you need to select the messages that actually contain burnout information. So it's been, language is the hardest part of AI, I think. And it's advancing a lot with things like ChatGPT, for example, that it's now fashionable. Um, but yeah, there's lots and lots of works in NLP, especially NLP when you have to be concerned about privacy nowadays. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, privacy, uh, privacy and NLP is something I, I want to ask about. Uh, I have a lot of questions that, that comes, like for example, uh, the inputs of the model. Like, uh, do you do you use um, only the messages, or do you have like a mapping of the employees with their age, and you try to 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 like build uh, an overall input, uh, but uh, this is a more technical question. And you mentioned uh, ChatGPT, um, so this is a very recent tool, uh, if yeah. if I'm correct. Uh, so you're saying that you've already implemented it uh, into your into the company. Well, um, not exactly, but like, okay. So we can start, for example, with the uh, input of the models. Uh, mm -hmm. There you have. A, I mean, a, I changed. I'm sorry. Uh, I changed. I changed my question because I'm. I wasn't <laughs> sure. Uh, this is something that you can share, but I would love to hear more about the, the inputs uh, and and how it works a little bit in sure. more technical. Uh, the thing there, it's like when you're building AI for production, you you have mm -hmm. to consider a lot of things because when you're doing AI for research, like in academia, the most important thing is that to prove that you have advanced the state of the art which is mostly about accuracy with some like defined metric by another paper, you know? So mm -hmm. then you have like the blue score, the rouge score, like 
lots of scores that have been creating by academia in other papers. And then everyone agrees mm -hmm. that that's the metric they should measure. And then it's like just improving that metric. So it's a, a game of accuracy always. But uh, so, for example, in terms of accuracy nowadays, you have all the transformer models, which their main, so these are autoencoder models that uh, use the attention mechanism. So they don't take all of the words with the same weight, but like some words have more weight than others, which is pretty obvious for uh, any human. Per, uh, like uh, in, in every language, most of what you say is just to fill out grammatical uh, concerns so people can parse what you're saying. But the semantic content is mostly in two or three words in the sentence. So the attention mechanism um, does this inside of the model. And then transformers are normally the, the best models for NLP nowadays, right? Uh, and then like transformers give you good accuracy, but the problem is that they can get really big. For example, ChatGPT, it's interesting because it's based on the GPT-3 model, mm -hmm. uh, just trained on a very uh, skillfully selected uh, like data set. And it also incorporates reinforcement learning as a way to improve the the responses that that this gives so it's very nice because now you have like reinforcement learning who has been successful for example uh, with DeepMind, all the alpha zero all these models that are really good like the the one that uh, won lease at all in the go game like that's reinforcement learning right so now you have transformers which are the best from nlp with reinforcement learning who has been proven in another uh, uh, all sorts of, of tasks and you put them together and that's why you get so good results with chat GPT, right? Uh, but you can, so that's awesome for academia. Like uh, that's awesome for marketing stunts. That's awesome to get funding. But in real life, uh, th these models are very costly uh, because of a lot of things. Like, of course, if you want to consume the chat GPT API and like pay for their API, uh, that's, that's great. Like, uh, but you need to have very few users because if not, the cost becomes like hundreds of thousands really fast, you know? So for startups, like you have two different worlds when you're going to production, you have like maybe three different worlds. You have the startups, which you have to be very low cost. Uh, you have corporates where you have, have to be like uh, scalable. And you have a public sector where you have to be able to run on-premise, you know? So then also corporates has on-premise problems. So then when you're training a model in real life, not in academia, uh, you have to have a lot of concerns that are not in academia, which is performance and, and cost. So uh, sometimes like, for example, Deberta is an amazing model in academia. Uh, we are using it for performance, but then when, sorry, for accuracy, but then when we want performance, we have to use a distilled version of one of these models, right? Because otherwise mm -hmm. it's too slow or, or it's too fat on, on memory. So, because mm -hmm. you need to have a GPU alive to run it fast enough. So mm -hmm. also you cannot have like eight GPUs, like one GPU in any platform costs around 700 euros per month, which mm -hmm. For a corporate, is nothing, but then for a startup, uh, 
it, it, it can be significant if you haven't, uh, if you have a small seed round or if you have no, no VC round at all. So to just jumpstart an AI project, if you have to pay a lot of uh, uh, GPUs to, for, for your tool to function because you used an out-of-the-box huge model like Google models or Facebook models or OpenAI models, it's super hard. So in our case, we use like distilled versions of transformer models. And mm -hmm. then like uh, the input is just tokenized according to the model we use. We, uh, mm -hmm. The hugging face transformers library is probably the most popular to train and deploy transformers into production. But mm -hmm. I think any major startup or tech company is probably using some like PyTorch with hugging face transformers for NLP mm -hmm. and probably like a distilled version of models and just attention tokenizers. Uh, mm -hmm. We are not working also into incorporating audio transcription into the input of the, of the models. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that solves your question. Yeah, that answers perfectly. Uh, I'm also wondering about the privacy in uh, audio transcription. Um, uh, but I have, um, I have various questions. Um, I think the first one, the, the most related one, uh, would be, um, if you would have to say, um, regarding, uh, all the technologies you've, you've seen, uh, if, uh, if you were to start again, uh, um, a SaaS a software as a, as a, as a service, um, and, and you needed like a basic data architecture uh like data engineer it's it's more a data engineering question and then i will ask you about uh, uh quantum computing in the cloud to maybe solve this kind of problems that you were mentioning uh but uh first so you mentioned pytorch um i understand that a, a software as a service would be uh, in the cloud to make an, an mvp but how would you recommend someone that wants to build an mvp with nlp some tools and a basic architecture yeah so serverless architectures uh, are the most cost effective uh, i'm thinking so again the three worlds right like startups corporates public sector like for mm -hmm. startups or to just launch any like i don't have money or i'm gonna pay from my own salary my project um serverless is the cheapest the problem with serverless is that normally they have a, a memory like a like um, a storage amount that you're project has to be, it has to be normally lower than 250 megabytes and PyTorch is like 700 megabytes. So you cannot fit PyTorch into a serverless, uh, but you can do everything else in your website serverless. And then there's a serverless version of PyTorch in SageMaker in Amazon, for example. I don't know if IBM or Google have a similar thing, probably they do. Uh, but the one I've used is uh, AWS SageMaker. Uh, which of course they don't pay me to tell you. <laughs> uh, I use yeah. it. So I have no commercial interest in that. Just that's the one we use in it. Uh, SageMaker lets you um, deploy a serverless version of TensorFlow or PyTorch or whatever. So that's that's very useful to train. They also have special instances to train. For example, if you use EC2 or any like um, instance to train. Mm -hmm. you get charged by the hour. So the problem mm -hmm. is you have to be really attentive to your consumption because, for example, it has happened a lot of times to me 
that I leave a task running and then I go to sleep and the task finish like at 3 a.m. And when I wake up, I already lost four or five hours of GPU time, you know, and, and mm. if, if this becomes a common practice, um, you lose a lot of money there. The advantage of things like SageMaker is that if the task stops at 3 a.m., they stop charging you like the, the training task finishes and then you don't have to worry about death times of the instance. And then uh, when you deploy, they charge you for every second of execution. So also like if you have very few users, like in the beginning of your project, then it's super mm -hmm. nice because you only get charged for whatever your users consumed. You don't have to have a, an instance running constantly. So mm -hmm. yeah, serverless architectures and training and deploying with SageMaker has been game changer in terms of cost for us. Mm -hmm. um, and also the speed of inference is really good. Um, then, I don't know, I got lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, so this is this would be for like uh, someone that wants to build an MVP and want to have a, a very low cost uh, um, data architecture. And then if you if we move to to corporate and uh, and public, uh, then I would assume that uh, it's different. But uh, on my question, the, the, the yes? most important thing, like I think the biggest mistake we made in Erudit uh, for corporates is that all of our so we went serverless, which is awesome for startups. But then a lot of corporate uh, companies or and public sector, so public sector, most of the time, uh, they want it on their own premises. Mm. Uh, and this also happens a lot for corporates, not necessarily that they have physical service like public sector, but maybe they want to use it in their own cloud. Maybe they have a deal with Microsoft or they have a deal with IBM, which are the main corporate providers, and you did it in Amazon. So then you need mm. to move to Azure and it's very hard to move from the Amazon services to Azure services. But if you use something like Kubernetes or like Docker to mm -hmm. have a microservice architecture, but inside of a, of a Docker container, and mm -hmm. instead of Lambda, for example, in the case of Amazon, uh, you use a Elastic container, which is mm -hmm. the same thing, but just uh, with Docker, uh, then you can just install that Docker into the Azure uh, platform. And that gives you really fast integration with corporate and public sector. So also if you plan to sell to corporate or public sector, uh, it's mm -hmm. it's good uh, if you dockerize it from the beginning. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great, great uh, tips because uh, I was myself looking at uh, like structures that engineer, like how to, to, to create the structure and and I was thinking of myself, uh, will, I, will I create contents? Will I use Kubernetes and, and Docker? And, or will I just directly go on the on the service? And that answers directly my question. So okay. thanks. <laughs> thanks for, sure. for, for the tips. Um, just before that, I wanted to, to get back on. So you were saying uh, it's very consuming. Those models are very consuming. And we mentioned uh, cloud computing. Um, yeah. um, so... Uh, a cloud quantum computing, sorry. So how do you see that quantum computing? Well, first of all, what's your point of view on, on quantum computing in the cloud? I know that IBM uh, are working on on um, on servers uh, that will be uh, that will be like that. How do you see, um, what's your point of view on this technology and how do you feel that it can enhance uh, 
what you are trying to do as building a lot of softwares with AI and Erudit, which uh, in, which enhance AI, but is very costly uh, to maintain. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, um, there are two main uses, uh, practical uses I see in quantum computing. One is, uh, are you there to me? Yes. Can you hear me? You froze. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, sorry. No worries, no worries. Uh, so one is um, when you have to model something that is quantum in nature. For example, if you are doing drug discovery or uh, protein folding or like in general, when you have something that is inherently quantum, you are working mm -hmm. with spectrometry or in general, chemistry, physics, simulations. If your product mm -hmm. is very oriented towards things that behave quantumly, uh, naturally, then mm -hmm. the results, the accuracy you can get from using a quantum computer is crazy better than what you would get on a binary computer. Um, mm -hmm. So then there's a niche in like biotechnology, like chemistry, very highly specialized, highly scientific uh, areas. So mm -hmm. for example, for a General Electric or a Schneider Electric or like um, any pharmaceutical company, this is going to be a revolution uh, just because of the inner nature of the quantum computing, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then for more like businessy things or more like normal, let's say, uh, applications, it's mostly about, for example, in, in the case of AI, you have already the CERC language that was developed by Google, and you also have QSKit by IBM to use mm -hmm. their own computers. So Google and IBM already have deployed like quantum cloud computing mm -hmm. and you have to use either CERC or QSKit. And the good thing about CERC, for example, is that you also have TensorFlow Quantum. So you already have like mm -hmm. a version of TensorFlow that is uh, quantum accelerated. But nowadays the applications are hybrid. Like you, you do not run anything fully quantum. You only run mm -hmm. the parts where the quantum computing, uh, computer is better. Because, for example, like in the 80s, we had to create all of the, well, I, I wasn't even more, but people had to create uh, the, um, the algorithms for very simple things like a matrix multiplication, dot product of vectors, like um, search algorithms, you know? Uh, and we don't have the quantum versions of that yet, for example. So mm. then, but... AI is mostly an optimization problem. And for optimization, um, the, the advantage of quantum computers is that you can roll, run any possible result of a function at the same time. It's, it's, it's crazy how it works, but the quantum computer literally computes all the infinite possibilities of a function, like all the function complete in, mm -hmm. in the same qubit. Uh, because of superposition. So um, you can, like, AI is mostly like, okay, I go one step down of my optimization, like my loss function, and then I try again, and I try again. This thing can compute all of the possibilities of the loss function at the same time. So you can mm -hmm. train a neural network in one shot. Like, instead of doing a stochastic gradient descent, you can, like, run your loss function and, and your optimization function in one shot, mm -hmm. look at all the mm -hmm. results and just choose the optimal version of the function 
but then you have to build the quantum version of these algorithms. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of work to be done in, in creating that, but we know how to solve small bits. So for example, TensorFlow Quantum lets you run most of the algorithm in CPU or GPU, and then you can accelerate the small bits we already know how to do in quantum in a quantum computer. And mm. like I've, I've tested it uh, mostly for vision problems and vision problems like training, uh, because normally a startup people or people who wanna train their own vision algorithm, go and download the weights, train on ImageNet or something like that, uh, mm. or Coco, depending on the problem, but you normally go to PyTorch or TensorFlow hubs and you download like the pre-trained version and then you just fine tune, right? But mm. these, these things were trained on hundreds of GPUs for two or three weeks. Uh, and in a quantum computer, you can train a ResNet 50 with uh, ImageNet instead of in three weeks in like a day or less. So mm. uh, it's it crazy speeds up um, the solution of any optimization problem. So it's going to mm. be huge when we discover like all of the algorithms we already have in binary computers in a quantum version. Yes, because what what's missing today is like to 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 programmers to recode like yeah, programmers right to code quantum computers literally like someone uh, is it hard no 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 i haven't had visibility like is it hard like this like for example tensor for quantum is it hard to 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 develop on, on this or that's that's what i hate about ai and, and quantum like uh because academic people have made it so that it's super scary like uh, when I started doing AI, everything was like equations. And what the equation does when someone explains it to you in like normal language, mm -hmm. it's super obvious. But then when you have yes. to read the symbols and everything, unless you are like a very highly skilled, mature uh, mathematician or, or like with a background in physics or something where you have to do heavy lifting of math, uh, mm -hmm. You read it and it's super scary. And then a lot of people abandon AI or quantum because they see the equation and it's like, oh my God, this is going to be super hard. It's horrible. Bye. Uh, but for example, quantum computing works with circuits instead of like line, 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 line. So mm -hmm. if you have the patience and the humbleness to say like, okay, I'm going to be stupid and I'm going to feel super stupid. And I'm going to be fine with not being the awesome programmer I normally am. Because I, I think ego is a, a huge obstacle to learn quantum. Because mm. you come from being a highly regarded super programmer in another discipline. And then you come to quantum and you are completely useless. So that because nothing uh, transfers from one realm mm -hmm. to the other. Uh, and mm -hmm. then like you're a baby again. And if, if you don't allow yourself to say like, okay, I'm going to be dumb. I'm going to be useless. I'm, I'm not going to understand anything, but I'm going to be okay with it and just like work through patiently for maybe six months or something. Mm -hmm. uh, then if you get through your ego and through being patient, uh, it's highly rewarding because it's not that hard. It's just very different. And, mm -hmm. and then you just need to allow yourself to get into something where you are not as good as your previous job. <laughs> so... You know, it's like starting over programming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, that's very insightful. I will for sure look at uh, 
look at uh, more in depth um, of um, of programming uh, in quantum. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just uh, different. You, you, you need patience and a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Awesome. And so we can we can see very soon that to Eridit you will have some models uh, that will what that will have been developed. Uh, with uh, with quantum or this is not in the plans uh, in, the, in the short term the thing is in our r&d department we do things for accuracy so we have mm -hmm. people focused only in getting more accurate models then we do things for performance and then we do things to test the state of the art so um what we deploy in production is of course not quantum because the the accuracy and the performance of something not quantum is still better, but we mm -hmm. still develop things quantum just to be in the state of the art always, you know? So then mm. when the time comes where the quantum solution is better, then we deploy quantum into production. But right mm -hmm. now, um, just the tools and the, the availability of computing and the cost is, is not better than just deploying normal stuff but it's still mm. cool to be there because then you have experience like when the time comes you have three or five years experience doing it quantum while other people are just starting to think about doing it quantum so we mm. develop but not for production awesome thanks thanks for the tips uh, okay great um in our first call uh we mentioned uh we, we started talking about uh, public policy ethic uh, and ethic around ai uh, and i would like to to ask you more in depth about that but first of all uh, how do you see ethic in ai and what are the challenges we're facing today Oof. Um, so every technological revolution we've had so just imagine, um, language is a tool, right? Language is technology. So mm -hmm. then language is the first big revolution that, well, fire, it's available, but either fire, the wheel, uh, or language mm -hmm. were like the first of the biggest revolutions for humans, right? So when we mm -hmm. invented fire, we were able to cook food. And when you can cook food, you can digest a lot of more calories in a smaller portion faster. So this allows mm. you to transfer time. You would use digesting, like you would have to nap. There are lots of animals that nap for five, six hours to be able to digest like all that they ate. Or you, mm -hmm. ha or you have to waste time hunting more calories to compensate for your need for calories. But with fire, you were able to process, for example, grains or or meat that you wouldn't able you wouldn't be able to eat or fermented stuff also was a huge um technology revolution um mm -hmm. because then you have yogurt cheese like uh, pickles like things that you would normally uh, get rotten really fast and and you didn't mm -hmm. have bridges so that 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 allowed us to spend time doing other things then the mm -hmm. wheel allowed you to transport things from one place to another using less energy. And mm -hmm. then language just changed everything because then you were able to record all that knowledge for the next generation. So AI is not the first or the biggest revolution we've ever had. We've had 
a lot bigger revolutions. Agriculture, for example, private property. There have been other revolutions, but this is one we are living now. So then it's it's more relevant or more important because we have taken already wheels, fire, language, everything for granted. The internet, for example, we have already taken it for granted too. So mm. I, I would just say that it's important to dimension uh, AI, you know, like also light bulbs we take for granted. There are so many revolutions we have gone through that we we have already taken for granted but mm-hmm. uh, eventually ai will be one of these you know like tap water like light bulbs like wheels you know but um mm-hmm. the problem with these revolutions is that they have created more inequality because still uh, like we live in europe and europe is probably the most utopic richest place on earth you know Mm-hmm. And here, like everything is super accessible. You can learn anything you want from the internet. You're not uh, scared of being killed when you go out of your home. Uh, like you live in a state of peace, you know, uh, that we have taken for granted also, you know, but mm-hmm. there are other parts in the world, but there's people with no electricity. There's people with no credit cards. There's people with no uh, clean tap water. There's people with no access to internet. So these revolutions have created more inequality globally, you know? They have made the countries that are already really good and really technologically advanced richer, but also the ones that are not further away from these countries. So Mm. one of the things we have to be really careful uh, with AI is not to create even more, because now it's going to be automated progress, you know, because ChatGPT can program things or at least can seem like it programs things, you know? And mm-hmm. you have autopilot from GitHub, which uh, I have uh, students that I, I do not use it because I'm scared that they will learn something that is intellectual property and then suggest it to another person. Uh, so I do not use it in my code, but I have a lot of students that use it. And the thing can suggest you a perfect autoencoder architecture just clicking enter to everything it suggests to you. And most of the time it works. So then it's not going to be far away when AI can program other AI. And then it's just like a snowball, you know? So mm. we have to be really, really careful, most of all, not to create more inequality with the, with the rest of the countries. You know? mm. Okay. So on an ethical point of view, Today, because uh, I remember this uh, this message. This I think it was a tweet from Elon Musk, uh, who was uh, was saying that um, mainly how AI uh, is um, a huge tool. You were mentioning like like when we invented invented the, the wheel and all of that, but like AI is a tool that can have uh, an impact uh, at a very high scale, uh, depending on on the on the tasks it needs to to, to be done. Uh, yeah. How do we face because then there is like okay so i'm i have an axe i always like to talk about like ai as a tool like like it's the same as an axe like with an axe we i get i can cut a tree but i can also harm someone uh with ai it's the same principle but at a higher scale because because we can we can build things that uh that well you mentioned that ai can, will probably be able to build ai um, but uh, also, like, um, 
we can do anything with a specific intention. So how do we make sure in the future in terms of laws, um, policies, uh, how do we take this into account, like the, how powerful can AI be and, and what can we do about it? And um, yeah, this is, this is a, a question I, I'm, I'm wondering. Oof, uh, this takes us back to language again. One of the main things I've been working in my life is how language is just a set of contracts and agreements. And mm -hmm. like a lot of technologies have to do with that. For example, blockchain, which is just automated agreements. Uh, so I, I think that's that's like the keyword, like agreement. Because, uh, for example, you and me speak English because first the UK and then the US uh, established like this world peace where they have uh, naval or aircraft bases all around the world and we have NATO. So technically um, we speak English because they are like the highest military power and then we use it as a lingua franca to communicate. In Europe before English, Latin was the language that was used because the Romans were the ones ruling the world, you know. So depending on who rules the world, we use one of the languages. Right now, I'm in Latvia, for example. And here in Latvia, uh, Russia was the guy who pulled the shots. So a lot of people speak Russian here, for example, and, and, and are just, uh, since they joined the European Union, are starting to speak English also, right? Uh, but for example, maybe for us, it will be like, if you speak French to me and I speak Spanish to you, probably it will be easier for us to understand that if, uh, you know, if none of us spoke English, than uh, having to learn English and then communicate English and then like translate it again. Uh, and it's, it's just agreements. Like um, a lot of, of the culture has been pushed into people through domination, through war, through, you know. Um, but then lots of other beautiful things have happened through agreement. So I think AI is going to just replicate the agreements we have as humans. So if we agree that killing other people is bad and we don't do that, then AI won't do it either. But if we keep making worse and killing people, then AI is just going to make it better <laughs> and it's going to kill better and it's going to kill more. Uh, because I, I, I think AI is just a reflection of ourselves. So if, if I, I think the, the problem of ethics in AI is also a problem of ethics in humans because we're only scared that AI is going to do our sins worse you know? and, and faster and better than us. So then we, we need to uh, agree more as humans so as the AI doesn't optimize our disagreements. Yeah, mm, mm. yeah and, and that made me think of, uh, uh, for example, how is it different from building AI uh, in, uh, in, in Qatar, for example? or in the US or in Europe. Uh, so how is it different from building AI in, in those different countries based on the legislations? And I think it's related to what you just say, because, well, first of all, how, how would you describe um, how it's related? First thing is availability of computing power. Like Amazon can't sell in Iran, for example, or, or in Russia or in China, you know? So, for example, mm -hmm. these, these countries have to develop their own tools to do their AI. And availability of computing power in Europe is a lot different from Africa, 
you know, just because mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. access to so many cloud computing services. So that allows you, like, a person in Rwanda will not develop AI as fast as a person, even if they knew exactly the same as a French person, just because mm -hmm. of availability of GPUs, you know? So then, like, um, the, the first thing that is different is availability of GPUs. The second one is availability of money to to buy those or rent those GPUs, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, access to venture capital in the US is a lot better than access to capital in France, for example, you know? So, or, or Spain or even Mexico, you know, even when Mexico has been growing a lot. Uh, so then those are two key differences for startups. Then for corporates, of course, is regulation. Because, for example, Mexico has a lighter privacy regulation than Europe. Europe, you have the GDPR uh, policy. So then mm -hmm. it's easier to develop dangerous things in Mexico than in mm -hmm. Europe. You know? mm -hmm. um, and, for example, Qatar in the World Cup, they, they stopped um, selling alcohol because they wanted... So all, all the thing with Qatar is that they wanted to promote Islam, you know? and like push Islam into the Western world through the World Cup. And of course they failed because we have <laughs> a set of values completely different from them, you know? So um, when you there's also a lot of political agenda that gets pushed into AI in different countries. So because in the US it's all about freedom, no? It's like you have to be free to do whatever you want. And then in Europe it's like, what is best for the community. So it's like, oh no, but you can't do it if you violate privacy. But then in Qatar, it's like, no, but then it should be like uh, something that promotes uh, Islam culture in the world. And so everyone mm -hmm. has their agenda and then we just enjoy being moved through the agendas of powerful people. <laughs> mm. Yes, it made me... Uh... Well, I think this is uh, this is something I will uh, I will for sure look how how AI uh, evolves based on on the countries because you were mentioning that AI is a reflection uh, of uh, what we as humans um, like share and think and and the actions we take on little scale AI can represent that higher scale and taking into account that some um, some yeah like for example in, in europe we have uh, rgpd and we try to legislate uh, a lot of this and when the legislation uh, is, is is less um, it can be uh, scarier use of ai and uh, self-driving so, yeah, uh... in california autopilot from tesla is legal so like you can just put tesla in autopilot in any california highway which you can do in France. And, yeah. and we have more beautiful highways in Europe, but you can't use autopilot here because of regulation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will for sure look more into this. I was also wondering, um, in terms of contracts, like uh, when you're a company and, uh, and you want to implement uh, AI, you were mentioning at the beginning, um, you're, you're now starting with a rigid trying to, to take into account into the models uh, I don't know if it's in production yet, but like some some calls, some retranscription of audio, and put it as an input of the models uh, you use to to enhance um, 
to enhance uh, the, the visibility of how the company is doing if like people are burned out or mm, so uh, in terms of these contracts when we when you, we think uh, of the audio of Erudit and at a larger scale, when we when we think of implementing AI in the in the in the direction and and to humans in the company, uh, how do we need to take that into account? Do we need to change the contracts? How how does this work? It's an excellent question. Uh, yeah, it depends on the country again. Like, uh, <clears throat> yeah, for example, most of the AI works better in English than in any other language. We have developed because we're uh, a US company, but with origin in Spain. So then we have trained also in Spanish and then just moved to English everything because it everything works better in English and AI just because most of the work in AI, it's either in Chinese or in Russian or in, or in English. Mm-hmm. And then you as a French person and I as a Mexican Spanish person, uh, I have developed a lot in Spanish, but then mm-hmm. I always have to do the English version to be able to deploy international, you know? Mm-hmm. So like uh, it depends on the country. Of course, our product is sold mainly in the U.S. market because the U.S. not only legislation, but culture is more open to these kinds of tools because Uh, for example, here, if you try to sell to the Germans, the unions will jump immediately to to your throat, you know. And mm. in Europe, unions are more important. Like in in the US, there are few or no unions at all, you know. Mm. And here in Europe, like you have to, like, especially in countries like Germany or France, you have to target the unions first instead of individual workers. In the US, mm. like any company is able to deploy whatever they want. And, and they are already using a lot of email analysis. And in the US, any person can, any manager can go and read any of their um, employees' um, messages. And that's unthinkable mm. in Germany, you know? Uh, mm. So um, then here in Europe, uh, there's a lot of compliance. You have to work with unions, talk directly to the employees. In the U.S., you can do pretty much whatever you want. So then, and in the U.S., like most of the contracts all, already have policies that pretty much whatever you do in company's property is from the company. So then I think as a worker, you have to read more carefully your privacy policy because we are so used to being shown privacy policies that we are known to privacy. It's like, ah, do you accept cookies? Yes, 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 yes. Like, That, I think that's one of the biggest failures of GDPR, that people do not have the time or the patience or the knowledge to read privacy policies. So, of course, do you accept the cookies? But those cookies could save all of your keystrokes, for example, and nobody reads. And then they give consent to getting all their keystrokes saved, for example, you know? And then what's the use of GDPR? So mm. I think one of the main problems is that the legislators are not technical people like not in the case of europe europe gets a lot of advice from technical people but there are a lot of countries where like the people who write the laws and the people who know about these things don't communicate at all and then you have a bureaucrat writing whatever he thinks is gonna be important and knowing zero about coding you know Hmm. okay okay so yeah very interesting Very interesting, and and again, this uh, 
this is um, this is 360 vision where like something in Europe is different from something in the US is different from something in, in, in Mexico. Um, and that's, uh, I think, yeah, that's uh, the main, uh, also one of the main things that uh, I will uh, nod to myself is um, like the region where you are yeah. really, really change everything. And also to everyone who listens to to us, uh, read your policy, <laughs> read your your contracts. <laughs> um, so you were talking. <laughs> what did you say? Sorry. Any friend that is a lawyer, just send it to any friend that is a lawyer. Exactly. So yeah, to do list. Have a friend that is a lawyer. Uh, I was wondering. Uh, we were talking about uh, governments um, and AI at a big scale. Um, how do you? How do you develop and put in production uh, a model for a government? Uh, how does that work? Could you give <laughs> us visibility on this, or is it uh... also depends on the on the government? Because, for example, China has complete control over their citizens. So uh, people think like, why why does China uh, develop so fast? Like, what what's the main difference between China and the rest of the countries in terms of technology and science? And is that in China, everything that the government approves is legal. So then if they want to clone people or like uh, extract organs from people or like do whatever in Europe would be horrible, they can and, and they don't care. So then there have been lots of experiments in humans and lots of like uh, any kind of cell lines and like th there's no regulation whatsoever only the Chinese Communist Party has to approve it or not. And if you are high ranked in the in the Chinese Communist Party, you can do whatever you want with any Chinese person. So and, and then there's the concept of privacy doesn't exist in China. So then the government can read all of your emails and can know everything that is happening in your computer, can control which websites can you watch. So of course, if if, if you have no ethical compass and and just care about like uh, developing technology sell to china that's the best thing you can do because there's no regulation in china uh if you want to develop in europe for a european government like it's awesome all the amount of data you have available so i think one of the best things of europe is that you have a lot of very nicely cleaned organized data sets to train so you can do anything inside of the European Union from data.europa.eu, or I don't remember. But if you look like European data portal, uh, you can get data sets for free, crazy, beautiful data sets, but it's only for the European market, you know? And if, mm -hmm. then, if you want to work in the US, everything is private in the US. So then there's no real government. So bureaucrats and contractors, you know? So then you have to work with other 30 different companies to do anything in the in the US. Of course, in Europe, you have a crazy amount of money and like, like they don't even ask, or, they only ask what are you going to use it for, but they don't ask for you back. So you can create a, an amazing 2 million euro project with public data sets in Europe funded by the European government, uh, which you cannot do in the US, you know? In, in the US, you have to raise private capital and you have to work with private contractors. So it's it's super different. Like uh, if you work in any British country, UK, US, Canada, like it's mostly going to be private. It's mostly going to be paid by privates. 
and it's mostly going to be a lot of private companies doing services. And if you work mm. in Europe, it's mostly going to be the government paying for you. It's mostly going to be with open things. If you work in Arab countries, Arab countries have a crazy amount of money. It's, it's like insane the amount of money they have. But then a lot of things are about controlling people. It's like, how do I control my borders? How do I do facial recognition? How do... So then your moral compass, it depends on your moral compass. Like um, you can do amazing projects in the Arab countries, but then you have to think your values first before you work there because think how many people died in Qatar in the World Cup, you know, building the stadiums. So mm. it depends it depends on the person. Like if, if you're a money-driven person that just want to get rich as fast as possible, go to the U.S. Uh, if you are a person who wants to build something sustainable and like uh, good for humanity and that is like the next step, work in Europe. If you want to build something super powerful with almost no regulation limits, uh, go to, with a lot of money, go to Arab countries. If you, you know, Africa is also very interesting and people don't look at Africa much, but Africa has a huge population. It's three, 3.5 times the population of Europe. Uh, it's starting to have money because of Chinese people. Chinese people are going to Africa, building factories. So because Chinese lower class is becoming the middle class now. So in Europe, it was like, oh, I don't want to do this. I send it to the Chinese. You know? And now the Chinese are rich. So now the Chinese don't want to do things Chinese people do. So now it's like, oh, Europe sends it to China. China sends it to Africa. And, and then like it's, it would be a lot smarter if Europe just started sending things to Africa instead of passing through China, right? But we don't. Mm. So then like um, I, I think Europe needs to start investing in Africa because if not, Chinese people are going to take over uh, really, really fast. And Chinese, like uh, African people now have more money than we think normally. Their cities are starting to be more developed. They are getting more bankerized. Uh, so Africa is growing. And, and then it's, it's a nice market to look at, to sell to governments, because they don't have all the things we take for granted. Hmm. Yeah, it remembers it remembers me of the Jumia story, uh, like how Jumia came into uh, uh, Jumia, which is kind of like the the the, the Amazon uh, Amazon of uh, of uh, Africa, and uh, I think it was an ex McKinsey that uh, that decided to he was working between Paris and and the US, and he decided to launch this, and they've built and so the fun thing about it is they built a lot of the projects. Uh, like to replicate the models, but a lot of them, they had to close it afterwards because it wasn't working. The market wasn't mature enough. And yeah. so that like, so they built a lot of um, um, like um, uh, a lot of uh, jobs for people. But when you need to close a branch, you also make a lot of people lose their jobs. And what you were saying made me think of what we were saying before, which is like how tools and how the world is going today um is it enhancing those inequalities and how what are the possi possibilities for like for example uh africa in terms of of technology or general terms uh but also um, south of america uh how do you manage because europe and the us and and the east have a, a lot of uh, money and, and and are able to build a lot of things 
but how do like how do we manage this inequality this is a this is a one thing that i really look um, maybe if you have an opinion on this but this AI. is a very wide question because like think about it like if us is rich europe is rich then they used to send everything to the chinese then now the chinese send it to latin america or africa when the africans and the latin americans get rich who is going to do the things nobody wants to do you know right so then yeah. Because you cannot put monkeys to do it. Or maybe we invent a way to put monkeys to build uh, things. But like at some point, like all low-wage jobs have to go somewhere. So I think the first thing we are going to automate, or that makes sense to automate, is all the, the low-wage repetitive jobs. Mm. Um, mm. And the problem is, like, at what pace do we do it? Because if we automate what African people is doing now for the Chinese faster than we can make Africans rich, then that creates inequality because then you mm. automate Africans without Africans being rich. So you mm. need to first make Africans rich and then maybe hold the technology for a bit. And then when, when African people are already middle-class and don't want to do those jobs, then you automate those jobs, you know, mm. because if, if you because the technology is growing faster than we're making humans richer. So we, we need mm. to balance creation of, of abundance for humans before yes. we put robots. And like, um, that, that's a problem that it, if rich people want to get rich by displacing poor people, we're going to have a population crisis. We're going to have a food crisis, or then we need to start thinking about welfare states like, uh, like Spain did, for example, Spain has uh, universal basic income approved. So you can't, if you're a Spanish person, you can die, like, uh, because the state will give you 700 euros, you know, hmm. uh, just because you're Spanish. So maybe we need to start thinking about that. Maybe like, okay, if we can find a job for this person and it, the, there's a robot uh, making the job of this person, then maybe hmm. I charge some tax to the robot or, or the robot owner. Uh, so that I can take from that and maybe re-skill this person. I, I think mm. most of the money that AI makes other people lose should go into reskilling people so that they go higher in in the socioeconomic mm. um, class. You know, like um, if if you're gonna put a robot to do manufacturing, then that robot should pay taxes so that you can reskill manufacturers and maybe make them lawyers or doctors or whatever you know mm, mm. and and so on and so on because we, we just don't need to forget that if it's a war ai versus humans we're always gonna side with the humans you know? so uh we need to remember that like uh that that when we have economy imagine the martians come like we're that that what happened before in, in with wars right like people who hated each other when they had a common enemy they would join and and become allies and forget all about their differences you know it's the same mm. thing like we don't have martian wars and but i think in the end we have to remember that if there's a earth versus martians or a humans versus ai in the end we're going to mm. side with humans so mm. then we don't need we need not to forget that in in that progress we're making in the end we're mm. all the humankind you know? 
Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, it's very, it's very inspiring. Uh, I think, yeah, um, I really look forward to to learn more about um, about different economic models, like how to manage taxes for like based on what AI is doing. Uh, but I feel like uh, what what you shared just uh, give an insight of uh, a reality that would be. I'm not worried about be... Europeans. Like Europeans is the less uh, worried I'm about because probably this is gonna happen. Like they're gonna tax somehow. Because even to people, if I, I pay for a three percent tax, you know, like even to people, mm. if you start getting richer, they they mm. tax you more, and and then it goes back to make other people richer. You know, uh, yes. I am not worried about Europe. I'm, I'm mostly worried about abusive states where you have like a one percent uh, class and then ninety nine percent people dying of hunger. Mm. Okay. Awesome. Thanks a lot for sharing all these thoughts. Um, I think we've come to, to, to an end for this episode. Uh, I have maybe uh, three little questions uh, just to, to finish uh, this, um, this episode. The first one is for the people who are listening, uh, how do you um, on a daily basis improve yourself and how do, you, yeah, how do you get better and how do you keep learning? I'm fat, man. Like uh, <laughs> one, <laughs> one of the first things I would advise is don't forget things that are not your brain, you know, because uh, mm -hmm. that, that happens a lot when, when we're doing a intellectual world, like you always feed the brain and worry about the brain and do everything about the brain. And then you get fat and your knee hurts. And so I think if, if I were my 21 year old self, uh, the first thing I would advise is also eat well, sleep well, uh, don't drink too much alcohol and go to a gym, you know, because if not, when you're 30, your knee hurts, your back hurts and you're fat. And so mm -hmm. then it's not, it's not all about brain, you know, and also having friends and going partying and like, there, there are so many things that are not just the brain that you should also take care of to, mm -hmm. to still keep a good brain because Normally on a Monday or in the weekend, I went partying and I saw friends and I saw family and uh, I, I slept and, you know, maybe had some physical activity whatsoever. I'm more motivated to work on a Monday than if I read uh, something super interesting. Hmm. Okay. So no, so just get out there, <laughs> get do out some of your sport, brain. Get out drink of your water. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Um, if people want to learn more about you and your work uh, at the Redit or um, in everything you're, you're doing, uh, how how can they connect or see your work or, or read your 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 posts? Uh, how should they? How could they see more of what you do? Yeah, uh, I, I have a website, uh, ricardomichel.com where okay i will put it in the description some like every once in a year or something i just copy paste all the things that other people have said about me there so it's a collection of like articles and podcasts and conferences and interviews and so then because for example here right like there are lots of things that we have discussed that uh, are information that i would not normally say you know unless asked you know mm -hmm. uh, so then i think to to just learn about what i have lived with so many things 
governments, companies, whatever, uh, there, mm. and then reaching me personally, normally through LinkedIn, um, or just my email. I don't know. Everything is there in LinkedIn, like my, my email, my phone, everything is there. Okay, I'll make sure to post uh, the, the links. Yeah. Uh, and last question of the podcast, uh, and before asking this question, I want to thank you again for, for coming and sharing your time. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope the people listening to um, have learned uh, a lot uh, in this uh, one-hour episode, a little bit longer than usual. <laughs> uh, last question, um, do you have a message? I mean, I think you shared a message regarding like get out there, get out, get out of your way and like exercise, drink, have friends, have fun. Um, but do you have a message that is maybe mm, a point of view about AI, about Erudit, about mm, psychology, um, language? Uh, what's your message, uh, the message that you want to, to share um, for closing this episode? Sure. I think... Uh... From all the things I've lived so far, I'm going to be 30 uh, next year. Uh, so, And I started coding when I was eight. So I've been coding for 22 years. And from all, all those years, I think first thing is I, I would have done AI faster if I knew more math. Uh, and I would have known more math if I trusted myself more. Uh, and, and if I were more patient. So I think try things, even when you know you can fail until you fail, like, like let the world prove you wrong. You know, it's like if I, if you said I, I can't better say I can, and I'm, I'm just going to think and have faith I can until the world proves me wrong, you know? Mm. And then like, um, and if, uh, I'm, I'm going to try and make my company unless, uh, on, until everything proves me that I'm unable to do a company. But I'm just going to have mm. faith I can until until everything shows me that I'm, I'm a complete failure. Because most of the times, you don't fail. <laughs> like, I have built so many things that everybody told me it was crazy or stupid and un, undoable. Mm. Uh, and, and I just kept trying until it worked. And... and you know, I failed a lot of times also. Like uh, before Erudit, I failed eight or nine times, you know. And, but I, I had other successful companies too. Um, and, and it's just that, like, um, just let life prove you wrong. And then, like, friends are the most important thing. Like, um, I, I couldn't do anything of the things I do without good friends. Like, most of the things I've done, uh, it's because... A friend introduced me to a VC because a friend uh, gave me feedback on some idea because a friend introduced me to some supplier because a friend introduced me to some customer. Like mm -hmm. the, like I, I think my friends are responsible for a lot of my success, you know, and mm -hmm. and it's it's important to take care of people. No matter if you're super busy and you have a thousand things to do always have time for friends i think mm. okay thanks a lot for this message okay. uh and thanks a lot for the episode i wish you to have a wonderful day and um and see you soon awesome thank you so much
Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.